Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this week's show, we will begin our preview of the 2021-2022 Florida Gators basketball season with a look at some of the roster pieces, uh, including guards, Brandon McKissick and Myron Jones, as well as front court pieces. All-SEC first teamer Colin Castleton uh, being kind of the centerpiece of that discussion. Eric Fawcett joins me as always. Hope you guys enjoy. And uh, remember to give us a rating um, or write a review at Apple. Hit us up with a heart on Spotify, any of those things that just help the show pick up sponsorships as we get ready to play ball. Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, we've made it to our roster preview shows. Today we're going to preview a handful of players uh, and talk about one of the new assistant coaches. Matting the coaches because we did these shows on the coaching staff change over the summer, but some people uh, tune out after March for a little while, so we'll revisit that I thought, um, and uh, saw some SEC Media Day stuff. Maybe we'll get into some of that at the end, but um, I guess we can start with player previews. And uh, no better place to start than first team All SEC selection, Colin Castleton. So, welcome, and uh, your thoughts on on Colin as he enters a uh, big year for him. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I, I think the thing for for Castleton. Um, and again, I, I feel like this might be starting it off on what, what seems to be a negative note, and I really don't want it to be. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the question with Castleton is, um, does he make another leap? Does he add elements to his game that make him more than he was last year as a junior, which was an awesome season, don't get me wrong. That's why I just want to be clear, like, hey, if he replicates exactly what he did as a junior, um, that's still an awesome, an awesome season. That's probably worthy of a first-team All-SEC um, selection. Um, it just, unfortunately for, for him might not mean he is reaching his, his kind of professional goals, but, um, you know, we know he's going to be able to block shots. We know he has great hands to catch the ball inside and, and, and finish. Um, we know he can switch out and be, be mobile, um, on the perimeter. Um, so that's one thing that's really good about Colin Castleton is you, you know, the, the, the floor for him is going to be really high. You know, he's going to be able to finish around the rim. You know, he's going to be able to block shots. You know, he's going to be able to rebound. It's just, Hey, does he make a step to be somewhere in contention for SEC player of the year? Um, or is he going to be, uh, you know, just one of the best, uh, one of the best centers in the league, which is still um, quite an honor given um, how many good centers there are in the SEC. So one thing we saw a little bit last year with John Fulkerson at Tennessee, for example, is that he had had that big season and come in as a first team all SEC selection. These aren't like for like players, but it's just kind of a player who come comes a little bit out of nowhere to have a big season. And then teams kind of focus on limiting what he does effectively. Any chance that that happens to Colin and, and um, is that something you would be concerned about uh, as Florida enters the season? Yeah, I'll be pretty interested because, again, I just look at his floor and I, I say, well, he's going to be able to run in transition. Hopefully he continues to get some of those um, kind of rim running buckets and he's going to get a little bit on the offensive glass. We know that. But are our team's really going to be aggressively trying to take the ball out of his hands when he posts up. Maybe. I mean, he was a good post up player. He was a, a positive post up player. It was um 
an efficient shot for him, which it's not an efficient shot for, for everyone. Um, but it was for him. So we'll, we'll see if teams really take that away. And that again is something that I do think if we're looking for kind of a tangible way for him to improve his game, that is, is not something as, as big as will he shoot the three pointer, which I'm going to ask you about later, if you think he can shoot it because we know he's going to try, but can he get a little bit better posting up? Because again, his post up numbers kind of like I was just saying, they really are good. But when you go back and look at them, it was a lot of him punishing switches or in some of those matchups where the other team was putting out six foot eight, 220 pound centers, then yeah, six foot 11 Colin Castleton, who's has a seven foot three wingspan was, was finishing over the top, but he wasn't quite someone who was um, going up against uh, similar size players. And in those situations, he wasn't quite as effective. So yeah, like I can say, Oh, look, and he's a close to a one point per possession post score. Um, but is he going to be that way against Oscar Shibwe? Um I would say no, based off the numbers last year, but can he get there? Um, we'll see. So, um, first, Neil, I'm gonna. I want you to kind of comment on that. What do you think about him as a post scorer? Is he someone you think that teams are gonna have to sell out to um, uh, keep from posting up? And then, you know, Neil, we know he's gonna try to shoot three pointers. So, uh, what is your thought on Colin Castleton's uh, prospects there? So, I'll, I'll answer them backwards if you'll allow me. Um, I'm not thrilled at the prospect of of Colin firing away from deep. Um, I understand that that's going to happen some. Uh, Mike White, you know, wants to encourage his players to do things that they've worked on. I think you'll, especially early in the season, you may see Colin take a three-pointer or two that makes you grimace. I wonder, I think really the productivity of that will be dictated by how effective it is early in the season. I think eventually if they're not going in, it's not going to be something that Florida wants because it's going to be a low percentage possession. Uh, if, if Florida allows him to just sort of fire away at the carry Blackshear rate, um, which I don't think we want the carry Blackshear rate of three pointers from Colin Castles. And he's just too good at the basket. Um, the thing I'd like to see more of him, he had 23 putbacks last year, Eric. Um, and I think, you know, people might've thought it was more than that, to be honest, but that was the number only 15% of his made twos came on putbacks. Um, so I think, you know, that shows that he can efficiently score when he's in the post, but I'd love to see him pass the ball out of double teams better, be a little more decisive in that area. Um, I also think that that might be a little more effective for a player and, and combination play with a guy like Byron Jones or with a Flan Fleming, um, two different players, but you can catch and release if you're Myron Jones um, in space. And if you're Flan Fleming, I really think that's going to be a good opportunity for somebody like him to catch and attack the basket. Yeah, I want to, uh, you know, Neil said something about Kerry Blackshear. I kind of want to just like go back to that, just kind of let people know um, what he's talking about. And and the thing with Kerry Blackshear was when he came to Florida, um, he was kind of known like, oh, he's a 33% three-point shooter, which, you know, isn't overall great but you know it's looked at as a good number for a six foot ten guy so it was like oh you know here florida's getting this big stretch center uh that's really cool and you know i kind of push back on it because you know he shot less than two threes a game so the volume was really low and when you actually look at those attempts it was what neil was talking about it was he's standing out there teams aren't guarding him and he's able to take a wide open three so Yes, he thought shot 33%, which might sound like, oh, when you're if your center can shoot 33%, that's a good shot. 
But when you go back and look at it and, and find out that essentially they were wide open shots that the defense was daring them to take. Um, well, it's, it's pretty clear right there. If the defense is daring you to take that shot, um, it's probably going to benefit the defense, not the offense. So then we kind of had some skepticism about Blackshear as a shooter. And then he comes to Florida and, you know, he's um, a 31% three-point shooter while still taking those shots, teams daring him to take that shot because um, it, it wasn't a great look. So uh, that I, I'm sure that Colin Castleton will get some of those looks. Um, hey, unless he's an awesome shooter and then teams will take away those looks. Um but uh, it'll be pretty big to see. I mean, against Elon, you know, if I put the over under at 2.5 three point attempts for, for Colin Castleton, you know, I think I'm going to take the over and, and maybe you are too, Neil, just because, yeah, I think he is going to just see like, are those shots falling? And if he hits one or two of them, um, then we could probably, then, then maybe against Florida State, that number is three or four or five. So, so, so we'll really, we'll see. I mean, it was, definitely encouraging to, to hear he hit a bunch of threes in, in NBA workouts. Again, some people are going to roll their eyes on that. And, you know, like rightfully so it's a time honored tradition to see players who can't shoot the basketball at all, go into uh, the summer workouts and post video of them hitting a bunch of threes. And then when game action is on, they can't do it. But at the same time, I mean, the, the pressure of a player like Colin Castleton going into an NBA workout and having no one in the gym other than scouts and, front office personnel and be able to knock down shots. Maybe that's worth something. Maybe not, but um, that'll be just important as, as we kind of evaluate Colin Castleton as a shooter that like, it's not going to be enough to just look at his percentage because he might be hitting 33% of them, which some people are going to say, look, that's a decent shot, a 33% three point shot from your center. But if we look at the numbers and kind of say, well, yeah, they were wide open attempts because the defense wanted him to take it. Then, um, we'll hope that there's something better that this Florida offense could get than, um, than a, you know, a 33% wide open three, I guess. <laughs> and any, any thoughts on, on Colin as a passer? Cause we did see sometimes last year where he would get in trouble just being a little indecisive and double teams and also like just simple stuff, like bringing the ball down to his chest on double teams instead of just fundamentally saying sound and high. And I think some of that, comes with minutes. I mean, we often forget, Eric, that maybe maybe you don't, and maybe some of our listeners don't, but this wasn't like a high-volume player at Michigan. He was really playing his first consistent college basketball. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some turnovers that look tough for Castleton because it was like, hey, the, it's clear doubles coming, and you maybe would have wanted to see the ball come out of his hands quicker. So, yeah, I mean, I guess some of that's on him, but at the same time, like a lot of his turnovers looking at them, I, they were like scheme turnovers. They were poorly spaced floor turnovers. They were enter the ball and don't do anything with the other four players on the floor turnovers. And again, that was, that's a problem we saw with Kerry Blackshear that it's, it's just again, in, in 2020, 2021, it is not enough to throw the ball into the post, not move at all and expect them to go one-on-one -on -one and be super effective because teams are too good at guarding it. And they, they will send quick double teams. And um, just for, for Florida, just the, the throwing it into them and, and standing around, it's like, yeah, maybe he should have recognized that the play was set for disaster when they kept throwing the ball in and, and not moving or running anything around him. So a double team was probably coming. It's like, yeah, I guess, I guess he should have, should have recognized that. But at the same time, I'm just maybe hopeful that Florida after a couple of years of seeing that, that style of 
you know, quote unquote, featuring your center by throwing it into him and, and having four guys stay stationary. Um, I kind of just hope that that's not good enough. And we see throw the ball into the post, a 45 cut, a flare screen on the opposite side of the floor, just little actions that keep it from being the most obvious double team. So um, sure, Colin Castleton could get a little better with recognition, but hey, let's not put him in situations where he has to recognize um, double teams that are certainly coming. Yeah, no, and I think I'm glad you mentioned spacing because part of the pass out of the double situation is involves some level of movement from other offensive players on the floor. It's difficult to pass out of a double when people are very stationary. It also sort of negates the idea of of getting the ball to Myron Jones off off ball screening action and stuff, which I think would be pretty effective in those situations. Dare I say? Um <laughs> Even even a guy like Flanders Fleming, there's a guy you could get the ball to stationary, but you want it spaced well because in my perfect world, he ball fakes and attacks the basket, right? Like we're talking what Bobby Knight would want him to do, what Coach suggest he would want him to do, but you better space the floor that way or else it's just going to be him dribbling into places where defenders already are. So it, I'm glad that you you brought that up. But you, you know, anything defensively that you think – going into the season. I mean, he's already such a talented defensive player, but, but stuff you'd like to see from him just for his development. Uh, well, while he was obviously a great kind of like weak side shot blocker and his ability to using his length, his anticipation, his leaping ability. Um, he was really good as a kind of weak side shot blocker. I mean, kind of similar to Kavarius Hayes and similar to Kavarius Hayes. There was also some limitations when it came to like, just straight forming a wall, taking contact and deterring some of these physical, you know, six foot three, 210 pound guards, like the SEC, like Terrence Davis style guards that are just bowling balls coming downhill. Um, it's there's, there's more to rim protection than just blocking shots. And I do think that sometimes he um, relied a little bit too much on his length as in kind of like stayed straight underneath the rim. So that, he could get up top or jump and, and meet someone at the summit and, and can try to contest a shot versus stepping out three feet and um, forcing a more difficult attempt and just taking contact. And of course, the fact that he was a little bit thinner, um, there were some guards that kind of blew through him. And that's something when we we're back, you know, back in the summer talking about his NBA prospects, there's those guards that are coming down and they're going to try to cave in the chest of the big man who's dropping. And that's to push him back, create space and, and then get a good high quality shot. And I do think that some guards were able to do that with Castleton. So we'll see what kind of strength he put on to, to kind of absorb those bumps. So part of that is strength. Part of that is him. I think kind of relying less on his length and leaping ability to say, Oh, I'm going to contest the shot by trying to block it. And more, I'm going to meet this guy ideally outside of the paint and go straight up and hope that instead of a layup that I'm, you know, he might contest or a dunk that he thinks he can block. It turns into a, contact and then the player has to shoot like an awkward floater or kind of a fadeaway. So um yeah, I mean we're getting nitpicky here, but he's a player who wants to play in the NBA and, and those are the things he's gonna need to get a little bit uh a little bit better at to uh to reach that goal. Yeah, that's why I asked for his development. Really like I don't know how much more of a plus defender he could be collegiately. Obviously if he improves in some of the areas you're talking about, he'll be a slightly better defender, but it's more about a a long-term question for a player like Colin. We stay in the front court discussing the next piece of the roster, and we bring up a player I think is really interesting to talk about. 
Uh, and that is Anthony DeRuji, honors graduate of the University of Florida. So congrats to Anthony. Um, on that front, uh, I think we'd all like to see growth on the court. I did not think – when I looked back at the season and then I started getting ready for this show, and I, unfortunately I was a terrible co-host and didn't give Eric the names of the people until like an hour before showtime. <laughs> um He's also been writing articles about them, so I don't feel quite as bad, but it was still poor form by me. Um, you know, looking at Anthony disappointing kind of does seem fair for his season last year. Um, and I think somebody capable of more if you watch some of his better games at Louisiana Tech. Well, first of all, no problem with uh, no poor form from you, Neil. On the uh, on that note, on podcast prep, like let let let's hope that uh, no Gator basketball player you could bring up would uh, be a curveball. I wasn't ready for. Um, There's only only fifteen, you know, only fifteen <laughs> players are. Um, so, uh, but when it comes to Jeruji, I mean, disappointing is 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 pretty fair. I would say just based off seeing what he did um, as in his first two years at Louisiana Tech and you know what, like if you look at any of the kind of wins above replacement or box plus minus or any of those kinds of um, kind of all encompassing stats, uh, Jeruji was actually, well, for, for starters, Jeruji was below an average replacement level SEC player. That is something that I think is, a you know, would have definitely been a surprise when we were talking about Jeruji as the player who transferred to Florida, the player who got to uh, have a redshirt year coming into his fourth season. If you would have said, oh, he'll be a below average replacement level player in the minutes he played, like, yeah, that would be surprising. And do I expect that to happen again? I I, I really don't. Again, I just like, I, I, I could, well, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, we really saw his best basketball kind of near the near the end of the season and and one of the things that of course really ended up hurting him and hurting his time on the floor sometimes was that he really struggled to shoot the basketball and um his his percentage at the at the end of the season um I think it was 26% but if you actually look like most of his makes were in SEC play so I think he actually thought shot 36% in SEC play from 3 which again that was low volume we talked about volume earlier and volume absolutely matters when talking about um we're talking about three-point shooting, but he did show an ability or, or you know, a, a capable ability to hit some, um, some three-point looks when he took good shots. And uh, I, I think when he, the, just the fact that he did play his best basketball of the season at the end of the year, the fact that he kind of admitted in the off season that he was pretty disappointed with how he performed and um, how he was going to come into the season a little bit more focused. And just the fact that, yeah, he was one of the players that was definitely hurt by the COVID stoppages um, by some quarantining earlier in the season. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic for Drugi. And I think that again, he was a player that I'll sadly say it again, was a below average or below a average replacement level SEC player. Um, so for him to, you know, even if he's an average SEC player, he, it's an improvement over last year. And I think we think he's going to be more than that in his fifth year of college basketball. So for, for all the reasons it kind of involved, he definitely is probably the most interesting Gator to talk about from like a fit role production standpoint. And he's one that I am positive, like looking at, looking at some of his numbers. And for that reason, um, you know, I mentioned the last podcast that I thought that I was getting more optimistic on the Gators. And a lot of it was to do with Tyree Appleby. Um, a lot of it is also to do with Anthony Deruji, who I think will go from a player who was not great last season to one that I think will be really solid this year. 
That's good to hear. And I, I, I think there's a chance that Anthony starts too. I think Mike White values his <clears throat> leadership, um, which I think on a veteran team, why not start a guy that's a leader if you're going to have a seven, eight man rotation anyway. Um, I think Mike White values his rebounding. We saw him have some really nice games on the glass. And I actually think he's capable of a little more on the glass too when he plays aggressively. I think he was passive at times uh, last year, both offensively and defensively. The classic guy who kind of let bad shooting affect him on the other side of the floor. He would get timid and passive in games. We saw it. the SEC tournament in the 10-7 back and played really well in the NCAA tournament, I thought. And, you know, we've talked about the impact he had in the Oral Roberts game. Picking up the third foul was was really one of the big turning points in the game, but he had 11 rebounds against Missouri on uh, senior night. Um, you know, didn't take any shots that night, but that was another good sign to me because he, he missed his first two shots terribly. Um, and then stop shooting, but it didn't let it, he didn't let it affect the rest of his basketball, which I think is going to be really important for Anthony in his fifth year of college basketball is find ways to contribute. You don't necessarily have to be making buckets to be a productive player in the SEC. We've seen this time and time again on the better teams in the SEC. There's always that guy. He could carve out a role as a glue guy because he is a pretty good defender, I think. And, and, you know, somebody that, like I'd mentioned a couple times I think can really help Florida rebound better. And that's been an issue for the Gators the last couple of seasons is, you know, how good are they on the glass? I mean, they were really relying on Trey Mann to dive down and uh, help and get rebounds. And Noah Locke, we remember, I remember at least two podcasts last year where Eric and I were pleading with Noah Locke of all people to go get rebounds. So, you know, it wasn't exactly a good scene, Eric. So I think he can influence things that way. And yeah, I mean, I think, there's a decent chance that that he starts shooting the ball better. We saw that a little bit in the SEC tournament too against Vanderbilt. He had a really nice game uh, shooting the basketball, made several baskets. He was one of two Gator regulars that had an effective field goal percentage of under 50%. Um, the other one was Scotty Lewis. I don't think that's going to surprise any listeners uh, that much, but, you know, Osaya Sifo, better effective field goal percentage than Anthony Deruji. Um, pretty limited uh, sample size there. So maybe a little unfair of me to kind of cherry pick that one. Not a little unfair, a lot unfair. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, I mean, when you get a guy like Keontae Johnson, who in a couple games is at 58% and then Anthony DeRuji over the course of the season is at 49. And we have this video of Louisiana Tech where Anthony DeRuji just murders closeouts. Uh, it is a little frustrating. Um, so, I do think some of it is understanding what his game is as well offensively, Eric. Yeah, I mean, his shot selection was definitely a problem. And as, as much as you kind of said, oh, it's not really fair to compare Osayo Sifo's sample size to uh, what Deruji was doing. Um, yes and no, because I mean, hey, if there's one thing about Osayo Sifo, it's like at least he didn't come out taking jump shots that um, he wasn't equipped to take. And yeah, I mean, there was games where Anthony Deruji came out like prime DeAndre Ballard and that was an issue. And, and especially when he had other shot makers on the floor, like, um, like a Tyree Appleby and a Trey Mann and Noah Locke, like there was just better options. And he went and dribbled into some really tough threes. There, there was also some times that I'm sure people remember on the podcast where the ball would be rotated and it would get swung to an open Deruji and he would pump fake when he had an open three 
and then he'd bring the ball down and then a defender would come and close out to him. And then he, he would pull up to take the three. And it was just one of those things that it's just like the, the processing just seemed to be a little bit s- slow for him when he was passing up a wide open three to take a contested three. And um, th- those shots we've just kind of seen throughout his college career, they're, they're just, he's not someone who needs to be taking pull up shots off the dribble. Um, and I just think he'd be so much more effective taking stationary threes, which he was able to hit in the, uh, the SEC and also was able to uh, that those are the shots he was taking at Louisiana tech where he was a okay shooter. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned attacking closeouts, Neil. I, I think that's the big thing for Daruji is like, we know he's in a, just a Supreme athlete. There just was not that many times last season where we saw him playing against a slower front court player and being able to just drive past him in a straight line, which with his athleticism, that's what he's got to be able to do. And I think that again, you can kind of talk like, athleticism versus functional athleticism. And yeah, we saw some of these incredible dunks, but yeah, we probably for someone that long and that athletic. Yeah. We probably want him to be a little bit better of a defender. We probably want him to be able to be against a slower front court player and go around the free throw line, jab once, take one dribble and, and, and lay it in or dunk it. So just still channeling some of that athleticism is big. And just like, yeah, just tangibly, I would love to see him go against some six foot eight, 230 pound, slower footed, sec power forward and have him be able to catch the ball and and drive by in a straight line because for someone that athletic i don't think that's unreasonable yeah uh yeah you know and another thing i mentioned and i forgot to mention that i was i was writing down this uh a couple of my notes for derugi and so and i i thought the compare and contrast on castleton just to show you like when he's aggressive on the glass good things happen Anthony Ruggi was second on the team last year in putbacks. He had 18 of them. Um, according to hoop lens, that's 26% of his two point buckets. So like more than one in four slightly came when he was aggressive on the glass off offensive rebounds. I mean, we'd like to see that. And then as to the closeouts, uh, he trailed just Scotty Lewis in terms of traveling violations. Um, you know, it's an issue. If you're going to attack a closeout, how many times do we see it in, in the college game in particular? In the NBA, not so much. Whether you think it's because they don't call it or they actually don't travel, hey, we can have that debate over uh, beers or sodas, whatever whatever you guys want. But <laughs> um, it's something Anthony Dershey needs to correct. Uh, yeah, it's just for him, it's about being kind of like a super role player. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, like, we, we talk about Colin Castleton's NBA prospects last year. We were talking about Scotty Lewis's prospects and Trey Mann's pro prospects. And before that it was Kerry Blackshear's pro prospects. And I, I think like, again, I'm not saying that I think Anthony DeRuji is an NBA player, but I know that there's front offices that are going to look at him and see his length and athleticism. And they're going to say like, Hey, if he could hit 35% of his threes and defend a little bit better, uh, they might see him as someone that they want to get in there for a workout or a summer league invite or, um, get on their G League team, like, and I, and I don't know what his aspirations are, but um, you know, NBA teams are sniffing around those kinds of players. That's the exact type of guy who kind of thrives as a role player in the NBA. So if I'm Darugi, I'm thinking like, hey, I am like 15% better as a perimeter defender and 5% better as a three point shooter, and I might be able to play in the NBA or at least have a cup of coffee in the NBA. So um, I, I, again, he's one of those guys that like we could maybe see like. You know, Justin Leon ended up playing a couple of years in the G League and 
when he came to Florida, that was probably not something you expected from a junior college transfer. I could really see we could be looking, you know, this time next year and, and uh, Anthony Derugis on the Oklahoma city blue, or, you know, insert your favorite G league team here. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, a great point by Eric. And we're going to leave the front court briefly and until roster preview show number two. Can't do the entire roster in one show, guys. Not possible. Briefly, guy did not put in the email, so I'm putting us both on the spot because I realized – Living, if you've been living on uh, under a rock, Eric, can you hear me? Just, uh, just a little quick uh, no, cut out there. So you're gonna have to repeat of... yourself. Okay, beautiful. So Elijah Kennedy, if you've been living under a rock, Florida uh, expanded its roster, um, added to their past recruiting class in a couple ways. The first guy was Elijah Kennedy, um, who was a monster at one of the best prep tournaments in the country. The peach jam suddenly becomes a Gator thereafter. Eric uh, thoughts on, on this young man who we don't expect to play too much this year, but just kind of give people the, the bird's eye overview. Yeah. I mean, if we see him play, it's, it's kind of for one of two reasons. It's like, one is there like injury disaster just because Florida's, you know, Elijah Kennedy, definitely like a shooting guard. And I think when you look at Florida's roster, there's just, no position as deep as, as shooting guards. So sadly, if Elijah Kennedy is getting run, it might be because there's so many injuries um, or the other kind of side of it on the more positive end. Um, Elijah Kennedy sees minutes because he just shoots the hell out of the basketball. And that's something that we saw um, throughout his high school basketball career when he was healthy. Um, he was kind of, he, yeah, he was an incredible shooter. He was someone who was definitely destined for a high major scholarship before he had a really gruesome injury and um like this is the exact kind of player that you want to take a quote-unquote flyer on like a player who is definitely on his way to be a, a sec level basketball player has a really bad injury that kind of keeps him from getting recruited and then goes and is one of the best players at peach jam like he was awesome before the injury he recovered and was really good this last offseason like i'm a little surprised that he was destined for prep school that there wasn't a high major offer for him then and uh, the fact that Florida was able to get him, I just think that was a, a really great use of their last scholarship. So, um, you know, tough. Um, I think he's listed at 6'3 or 6'4. Some of the pictures that Florida has been showing maybe suggest he's a little bit smaller than that. But um, uh, we know he's tough. We know coaches really like him and his personality. And we know he can really shoot the basketball. Yeah, 6'3, um, kind of a wafer right now. Like, definitely need some time with Preston Green. Um, but, uh, you know, is definitely a, a guy that Eric and I both thought that take made a ton of sense. Um, on the next show, maybe we'll get into the other one that makes less sense, uh, at least to me. Um, but, you know, that's not for this show because we're, we're living in the backcourt right now. And we'll go to Brandon McKissick, who seems to be the guy with the most buzz in fall camp, whether it's the team leader or just that dude on the defense, somebody that's given this team an edge. Um, your thoughts on Brandon McKissick, the transfer from Missouri, Kansas City? Yeah, I mean, I would say from a couple of the pieces that that Chris Harry wrote, 
Um, it's, he seems to be like Mike White's favorite player. And that's something that I think we kind of predicted just because he's, yeah, a little bit of an undersized guard who plays really tough on ball defense. And uh, he was also someone at UMKC who shot the ball really well, was a 42 or 43% three-point shooter on some good volume. Um, he hit something like, I forgot, I, I tweeted this out right when Florida got him and wrote it like, the other day at Gator country, but I think he hit like 65% of his catch and shoot or his wide open catch and shoot threes, which didn't come often for him because he had the ball so much. And because UMKC wasn't great, but uh, when he was left open, he was lethal. And even when he wasn't left open, he was pretty lethal um, 40 plus percent three point shooter. So um, he was, uh, he played point guard for UMKC. Um, Neil, I'm interested what you think most about his point guard prospects. So I'll throw that to you in a second, but um, I, I think it, I, I, I kind of uh, it, where exactly he plays is probably the biggest question for, for the Gators, just because it seems like he is going to get a lot of run. Um, how exactly that is though, would be, uh, would be the question. So Neil, what do you think about him as a point guard versus a shooting guard? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think he's a little bit of a tweener, a little bit of a combo guard, but he gives Florida certainly a, an option. Um, I think this is going to be an interesting Florida team because there's, well, I think Tyree Appleby is really the only true point guard, but there's going to be several secondary ball handler options, which is something that once Keontae Johnson uh, dealt with his tragedy that really wasn't last year for Florida, um, it was kind of Appleby man and uh, hope uh, to some extent that nothing went poorly. Um, you know, all due respect to Quest Glover, but that really wasn't something that, that we saw, at least particularly in road games, that it was a rough go for him uh in in tough environments so i think none of those concerns with brandon mckissick handling the ball like i think absolutely something he can do another thing that i thought was interesting that he added is that uh while he did shoot 42 percent from deep which is a very good number um only 68 percent of his three pointers were assisted uh so that means 32 percent were unassisted three pointers which is nice it's a nice thing to have when you have a ball handler who can kind of survey the defense, stop and pull up. We saw Trey Mann do that some, um, although in his spectacular Trey Mann way. I think those of you who have followed Florida basketball for a long time will recognize Brandon McKissick more as the Torian Green type, who is just kind of dribbling at the top and sees that the defense is slacked off of him and says, okay, uh, and is capable of making that three-pointer. Um, that's not – particularly common in college basketball, Eric. We've talked about how a lot of guys need to be rhythm shooters or they need to come off a screen or, uh, um, you know, they need to be in the corner and receive a pass and catch and shoot. Uh, so it's nice to have a player who can do both, which I think gives him some versatility that I didn't know he necessarily had until I crunched some numbers. Yeah, and I think Florida's going to need that now that they don't have Trey Mann who can kind of create at the end of a shot clock. And um, if, if McKissick is able to create that way, then uh, his uh, probably his prospects as a point guard are, are much higher, and maybe we see some some competition there for that starting point guard role. But I, I think kind of my issues with Brandon McKissick as a point guard where uh, I, I didn't think he made high-level reads out of the pick and roll at UMKC. Um, he had a really bad habit of leaving his feet every time he made a pass, so that could get you in trouble and turn the ball over. But just kind of overall, I would just say watching his point guard minutes, it just like they're just wasn't a high level of, of, of flash. There just wasn't a high level of creation. So yeah, it's like if the defense sucked in, he was able to make a one pass away, 
skip to a shooter, then, you know, that was, that was great, but there wasn't like him changing the angles and distorting a defense so that he could feather a pass into a big man or um, deceiving the backside of a pick and roll defense with his eyes. So he could go hit a shooter on the opposite side of the floor. Like there just wasn't some of that stuff that I just feel like you need if you're going to be a sec level kind of point guard operating in pick and roll. But yeah, if it's 10 minutes a game at the point while, Tyree Appleby's on the bench. Um, you know, he's going to be safe with the ball. And um, if nothing else, there's probably going to be also some more slight point guards where McKissick's going to be able to drive the ball on them, not because he's that much quicker, but because he's that much stronger. So uh, that it might be a little bit of a different style of play than, than with Appleby, but he'll find a way to be effective, I think. Yeah, I like the strength for his defensive capabilities too. And we'll get into that in just a second. I wanted to say one more thing about his offensive game. Only a 60 eight percent free throw shooter so i don't think florida is necessarily going to try to put the ball in his hands at the end of games we'll get to myron jones in just a minute i think that's going to be more his role more of the tyree appleby role uh late in games but because he handles the ball and commands the ball more i think there could be some nervy late game free throws from brandon mckissick uh late in the season if you're a 68 percent shooter that's two out of three so just hope that we're on the good side of of that equation defensively um you know defensive player of the year in a decent mid-major league um i know it's something that you've talked about on some of the summer podcasts talk about maybe your reservations about that translating to sec play and then maybe how do you think his strength will help him compensate for maybe some of the quickness uh issues that he might have playing in the sec yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the thing with his defense is like, like one, he's listed at six, three. I, I don't think he's six, three. I don't think he's that tall. So not super long. And, and UMKC has always been kind of a, a good defensive program. And um, the thing with that was they play pack line, like a really exaggerated pack line defense where they get a lot of help on dribble penetration um, from the nearby gaps. So kind of like two notes on that. Like one, I will say Brandon McKissick was outstanding in that role as a help defender. Once one pass away, like his ability to sit in the gaps and close like, and then quickly close out to a shooter. Uh, he played that scheme really, really well. Uh, kind of the other side of that was that I thought that he wasn't a spectacular on ball defender and that there was times where he was continuing to like, like offensive players were getting a step on him with I would say relative ease or at least relatively it, it was happening quite often. And because their gap control was so good, it was getting covered up and he wasn't getting, you know, blown by like it's in some of their defensive schemes. If he were to have gotten beaten the same way, the guy might have a layup, but because um, they were kind of prioritizing, taking away those drives and saying, we'll give up some of those three point shots. Um, there was times where, yeah, I think his deficiencies were covered up by the scheme, but at the same time, it was like, Hey, that was the defensive scheme they utilized. And Brandon McKissick was really good in it. So, you know, maybe I'm overthinking it. It's like, Hey, what more can you ask than a guy to partake in the defensive scheme that the coaches laid out and be really good at it. So I would say my questions are, well, or my <laughs> reservations would be like, well, he's not super athletic or big. So it's not like he is uh there, there's going to be times he's giving up length. There's times he's going to be giving up quickness, but um, he is incredibly strong, incredibly stout. And 
Um, that kind of matters again, when you're, you're playing some of these physical sec guards who were trying to create contact with their first step to kind of push a defender back and, and create space for them to get into their next dribble move. It's well, it's like some of these players, like if they try to get physical with McKissick, I mean, they're going to bounce off him and get off balance and then he's going to come away with a steal. So I do think his tenacity is, is going to be really helpful in the way he plays passing lanes. He's going to get him a lot of steals as a help defender. Um, but, um, you know, I don't think he's someone that Florida, especially in the way that Florida defends, they're not going to be able to say like, oh, Scotty Pippen Jr. Okay, we're putting Brandon McKissick on him and he's going to be out there on an island because I do think that he's going to be able to get by someone like McKissick relatively easily. I mean, at the same time, Scotty Pippen's going to get past, you know, everyone, but I'm not sure that McKissick will even be necessarily Florida's best option in those kind of matchups. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know, like, necessarily that mid-major players always you know take have a little decline when they transfer to a power six program defensively I, it certainly has happened the inverse is definitely more true i mean andrew nimhard was runner-up for wcc defensive player of the year behind the beast that is matt harms so i don't think like um you know andrew nimhard was winning defensive player of the year in the sec although there is a certain podcast that often applauded his defensive play. Uh, but then when he was in the WCC playing against San Francisco, the guy was just a tenacious B. So, you know, I think it is a little bit different of a level of basketball and, and we'll see, um, you know, how it translates. What I do think is he'll be a, a plus defender and in a program that has rolled out Quest Glover and Noah Locke and players like that on the defensive end, uh, he's going to be a significant uh, upgrade defensively over those guys, Eric. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I do wonder too, as much as uh, there's parts of Florida's scheme that I don't think uh, will kind of benefit him. Like again, like if he gives up those half steps, like he was giving at UMKC, there's not going to be help in the gap. Like there, there was in that scheme. Um, but at the same time, you also have Colin Castleton behind him. So um, maybe that is something where where White does tell him, hey, like, go and be as physical. And at the point of attack, pick someone up 30 feet from the hoop, especially if he's playing point guard, um, hound them. And if you get beat, then um, we're equipped to, to scramble and recover. And that's kind of been Florida's thing is that they've been kind of a scramble and recover type defensive team. And uh, it's worked really well, especially when they had like Kavarius Hayes on the back end. Um, blocking shots and and when they had guys who were kind of off the ball that had a lot of speed um actually a player that he like again i think that this player i'm about to reference is a better defender than brandon mckissick but a player that actually does kind of remind me of brandon mckissick defensively was Kayvon allen someone who wasn't particularly long but was really muscular and and straight line quick Kayvon allen was definitely laterally more quick than mckissick so that's where the, yeah. the differences are there but Florida was so good with Kayvon Allen and part of it was Kavarius Hayes on the back end, but part of it was because Kayvon Allen was such a good scramble defender. He was someone who was so, so quick in straight lines that he could be way over and help side, helping tag a big man and then sprinting out and closing out to a shooter. And if the guy tried to bump him on the, on the blow by, I mean, well, he bounced off Kayvon Allen. So I, I, there is some similarities to, uh, to Kayvon Allen, I would say defensively, um, but, uh, again, not quite as, you know, so good laterally. And that's what made Kayvon Allen, you know, a really good defender. Hey, maybe some offensively too, given those uh, <laughs> three point percentages and, and McKissick's a little better. Um, so, Hey, you, you never know. We'll, we would take a Kayvon. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, 
allowed cave on that sounds glorious <laughs> uh, which you know so let's let's hope for that uh myron jones is our next player to talk about a power six transfer from a penn state team that again was really good the year there was no ncaa tournament uh, a team that i think a lot of people would have advanced to the second weekend in their brackets certainly to the second round uh not as good in a covid year um, I'd love to say some of that was Myron Jones, but it really wasn't. He was pretty steady both of those seasons. Uh, Three-point percentage just 0.8 away from each other, 39.5. Last year, 40.3, um, the year that Penn State was quite good, the, the COVID year, um, take, took about half of his shots as three-pointers in both seasons. And, um, you know, just not really much else to say about that. The one thing I would say – about Myron is uh, he's a really good, this is the guy that maybe is your into game guy, 78% free throw shooter. That's pretty good. A um, little bit in that Appleby range. Uh, so somebody that we can ask to handle it, Eric has addressed scheme and schematic fit for him. So I think that's a good place to start just to refresh people on when Myron Jones is at his best. Cause we've heard he's the best shooter on the team and, uh, and certainly if you look at volume and makes, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, Penn State, I'll also remind people, according to Ken Palm, they were one spot better than the Gators last year. So they had a losing record. Um, they obviously were nowhere really near the the NCAA tournament. But if you look at the advanced numbers, they were a lot better than what their record suggested. And uh, it was just a lot of close losses for them um, up and down the schedule. They just uh, – could not get it the, on the right side of close games. And that's kind of, yeah, why they unfortunately were, are not getting talked about as a very good team, despite being one spot better than the Gators and Ken Palm, which is just how college basketball works. But yeah, Myron Jones, I, I, again, just such a good shooter. Um, the percentages have just been really good from the last couple of years. And he's got a really funky release where he shoots the ball with uh, from the left side of his face, even though he's a right-handed shooter. Um, and that's going to cause some inconsistencies and some, some tough misses. So he really is a very streaky shooter. Um, but overall those streaks come out way positive, you know, the 40 plus percent three point percentage, but, um, there's times where, yeah, he's probably going to go one for seven for the Gators, but then he's probably going to go six for eight. So kind of channeling those games in the positive are, are going to be the kind of the key for the Gators. And you just kind of hope those one for seven games come when other guys are, are playing really well, or the Gators are able to uh, defend at a really high level. So, um, another thing with uh with Myron Jones I I think and that'll be kind of the most important thing for his role at Florida and and how things go are kind of how Florida chooses to use him and how how his shot selection ends up being because again we know he can be a really good three-point shooter not we know he can be we know he has been a really good three-point shooter um but he was someone who took a lot of mid-range jump shots and they went very very poorly throughout his career so um, he was someone who shot um, – he, he averaged over two mid-range jump shots per game, and he shot 27% on those attempts. So that's a that's a good amount of mid-range shots, and that's even below the national average on those attempts. He was someone who shot a ton of floaters, um, and those were not very efficient shots and, and ones that he didn't draw fouls on. And um, I, I guess one of the more interesting stats for, for Myron Jones that um, – kind of speaks to him as a player a little bit, I, I guess was, you know, last year he shot 
you know, 39.5% from three and he shot 39.4% from two. So he's not someone who's particularly confident finishing on the inside, not a great athlete, not particularly big. So he's someone who would, yeah, again, he, he really liked to settle for mid range shots when he was driving because I don't think he wanted to get to the rim. I don't think he wanted to try to have acrobatic finishes. I don't think he was someone who's great at taking contact. So at Florida, I think he needs to be someone who really is playing like early Noah Locke, who was taking those threes or he was giving up the ball, not trying to take a couple of dribbles and shoot in the mid range. Um, just saying like, Hey, if it's an open three, I'm taking it. If not, um, there's guys to my left and my right who are more equipped to, uh, to make a play than me. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Eric. And I was going to bring up that he took an insane 42% of his two point shots for two point jumpers. Um, wow. It's, that's a high number and probably not one we want to see him replicate at Florida. So it just needs to be a little more disciplined in that front. Um, that contributed to his effective field per goal percentage, that and the volume of threes he takes being 48.8, which is a little higher than Scotty Lewis, but below Anthony DeRuji. Um, also a sign of like a streaky player. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's going to be games where he's not making shots and people are, are wondering why he, he keeps saving them up. There's going to be other games where he's a microwave. You kind of take what you can get with him. He was on a team that was three and eight in games decided by five points or less last year. Um, if you want to know why they were probably really good in Kinpom, uh, uh, there it is. If you play 11 games that are decided by five points or less, you obviously anchored the basketball gods if yeah. you lose eight of them. Um, but that was the deal with Penn State and, and why they finished uh, 12 and 14. Um, defensively, anything to be necessarily concerned about? I don't think so. I think he can uh, compete on the defensive end. Uh, I I do think there's some defensive concerns. Again, just as someone who I is you know six three and like 170 pounds and and not really athletic. Um, there was definitely kind of times he was getting headhunted watching his defensive clips where you could kind of see that these, especially in the Big Ten, that's so slow and methodical. There was teams that were definitely working to, to kind of get a mismatch on him. So uh, again, I don't think he was a terrible defender. It certainly wasn't due to a lack of, of effort or, or caring or anything like that. But um, yeah, if you're uh, not long, not athletic wing um, yeah, there's going to be some problems. And, and yes, in the, it was one thing when it was in the big 10, but you're definitely taking an athletic step up in the sec. So while I don't think it was like a disaster by any means, I don't even know if it was necessarily like, like again, like I would say, like maybe average Big Ten defender. I would say probably below average based on what I saw and, and the numbers. But um, I do think you're stepping up the athleticism, especially at his position, um, a good bit when you go into the SEC. And again, we'll we'll just kind of see exactly how the lineups shake out. Like, if does he end up being at the two guard position a little more in the SEC, where he is maybe going to have to guard more quick ball handlers, just the way that lineups have historic or kind of been like in recent history or is he going to be guarding small forwards where he'll give up size but kind of recently in the sec has been a position where it's a little bit more stationary shooters at the, the, the small forward position so he might get insulated that way so i will say definitely a um, definitely a matchup dependent defender but one that i do have you know maybe a little bit of concern about okay um you know i i think that's reasonably fair the one caveat i would I would make is that, I, and I think you, you hit it. I think it's rotation and lineup dependent. Um, like for example, I wouldn't put Myron Jones on the floor when there's not rim protectors in. 
Mm-hmm. Like, so if we don't have Colin Castleton or Anthony Derucci on the floor, um, then that's probably not a rotation I want Myron Jones on the floor in. And I think some of his bad moments at Penn State come when he gets beat uh, or they do get isolation on him and there's no one there to help at the rim. And that's because Penn State was terrible at that. 332nd block rate, uh, 300th in field goal, two-point field goal defense, which is also probably a reason they lost a lot of games that were decided by (laughs) five points or less. Um, You know, like, uh, how? what was the game? Missouri. God, how could I forget? Uh, That was not Florida's finest hour defensively. And like, that's kind of the situation that I'm envisioning when Eric talks about, you know, maybe picking on Myron Jones a little bit, got to be someone on the floor that can clean that up. Um, So I, you know, I I do think his defensive issues can be limited a little bit by being on a more athletic team, which this Florida team should be. Um, But also, you know, Mike White has to be smarter with his rotations this season than than he has been at times in his uh, past. Well, I, I will say this: uh, this should be an all time year for um, my lineup analysis that has been, you know, pretty interesting. I would say the last couple of years, but a lot of it has been just due to uh, maybe things that happened in big games. Um, but it hasn't been because the Gators have been awfully awfully deep with like a bunch of lineups that could have been utilized better um, this year. It'll be really interesting to look at these numbers and see chemistry. And uh, uh, there, I'm sure there's going to be interesting insights from it, but, and again, that, that matters a little bit of like, Hey, do we think it's going to be Tyree Appleby, Brandon McKissick and, and uh, Myron Jones starting games, um, which I think a lot of people are maybe expecting. Um, okay. Well, we'll see exactly how that goes defensively, but is it, you know, Kowasi Reeves at, at small forward or is it Flanders Fleming at small forward with Myron Jones at the two? Well, that would really change things. Um, especially if it was Flanders Fleming probably on the defensive end, but, um, you know, you, you know, Neil, I actually have to, I have to give you a, a just a little side sidebar here. With uh, with Ken Palm uh, putting out their numbers, I mean that's something that of course the AP poll came out the first one of the season. Yeah, uh, Ken Palm put out their preseason uh, kind of predictions rankings. Uh, Bart Torvik has the metrics; they put out their preseason stuff as well. And every predictive metric has the Gators being a better offensive team than a defensive team. What is your reaction to to those numbers? I mean, it's just not what. or less about I think Mike White probably returns to having a top 25 defense this year I really do um not to give away you know a future pod before the season where Eric and I do what we did last year and go back and forth but you know my my worries are the nights where Myron's not a microwave and is Tyree Appleby forcing shots uh you know it's more about scoring is Mike White hesitant to play Kwesi Reeves when he needs buckets? Um, you know, those sorts of things. Because I think I think there's a couple different lineups that Florida has, and we're going to get – this. maybe this is also a good way to segue into Niles Lane, where Florida can be really, really good on defense. And then you kind of wonder, okay, so where do we get baskets? So <laughs> I guess to answer your question, uh, that was a little surprising to me. Was it surprising to you? Um, uh, like yes and no, but generally I would say no, because you look at the last couple <laughs> of seasons and as much as 
as much as, you know, Mike White's had the reputation of a defensive coach and that has been, they have been better defensively than offensively generally throughout his career. The last two years, the Gators have been better, you know, offensively than defensively. So that kind of makes sense. And I will also, you know, point out is that as much as a lot of the messaging from the offseason has been that they think they're going to be really good defensively and it seems to be defense is the focus. I mean, I'll say, like, I'm not sure if I think Tyree Appleby is going to be an average or above average SEC defender. Um, Myron Jones, I, I'm not expecting that to be the case. Um, Myron Jones, um, you know, well, like, I, uh, I just people that people that I think that are going to be a little bit below average, like, and Kwesi Reeves, what do we think he'll be as a defender? You know, well, he'll be young, so he's got all the gifts, but you know, looking up and down the, the the lineup, I see some guys that I have some questions with, then some guys I think that are, you know, good defenders and uh, really good defenders in some cases, but you just wonder exactly how much they're going to, they're going to play. So um, we'll, we'll see when we do our, uh, you know, preseason over-unders and superlatives um, exactly where I land. I still need to think about it, but uh, I, I will say again, if you just look at, well, Florida was better offensively the last two years than defensively, then I guess, no, you shouldn't be too surprised that uh, Ken Palm's predicting that or Ken Palm and all the other predictive metrics um, are expecting a better offensive than defensive team. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about two of the guys that I'm thinking of on the show already and McKissick and Castleton. Um, we'll finish our players portion of this pod with Niles Lane. I mean, if you get those three on the floor and couple them with some combination of Daruji, Felder, um, you know, Flan Fleming, I think you have six plus defenders on the roster. There's ways to, you know, rotate them around. Um, and put them with other people to maybe cover up deficiencies and mass deficiencies a little bit more. Obviously, we're um, – so everyone knows we're leaving Keontae Johnson out of these discussions because we just don't know anything uh, beyond what everybody else knows, nor are we seeking out that information. Um, but uh, Niles Lane, lots of talk that maybe the most improved player on the roster coming back. Uh, seeing – the handful of video clips that we actually get from Florida um, seem to show he is comfortable now taking the bad ball and attacking the basket. We know he offers secondary ball handling. Um, and we also know that numbers say he's a really, really good on-ball defender. Um, you know, how many minutes does that translate to into? I think the million dollar question, Eric. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question would be how many minutes would he have gotten last year if he was an average three point shooter, because there's a team that needed to defend better. Um, one of the big problems last year and Niles Lane was someone who kind of looked like he was going to be, or what was when he was on the floor a really positive contributing factor in that end but yeah on the offensive end there was there was problems and he was someone who um other teams didn't really have to guard so uh if he was able to even just hit you know 34 percent of his threes off the catch uh, it was probably a very different season for him last year so i really think that's kind of where the quite it's really a simplistic way of looking at basketball to just say like hey how many shots is, is niles lane gonna hit but you know, we're guessing he's not going to get any worse on defense. Um, so we know he's going to be really good there. Um, so then the question is like, hey, is he able to shoot the ball well enough to um, keep him on the floor? Because if he's out there with 
Kawasi Reeves and and Colin Castleton and Tyree Appleby, um, those are going to be the guys with the balls at, ball in their hands, and they just need someone who can space the floor and then play really good defense on the other end side of the floor. So it's like Niles Lane is someone that I could very unfortunately see not shooting the ball well and then just falling behind Myron Jones and Flan Fleming and Kawasi Reeves and Brandon McKissick. Or I could see him hitting 35% of his threes and suddenly you're like, oh, well, he's bigger than Brandon McKissick. And um, he's someone who uh, can defend a little bit better than Flanders Fleming because he's more athletic and and better laterally. And uh, maybe even someone that I guess maybe the other kind of swing skill for him is like, Hey, is he someone who can handle the ball a little bit? Like we're seeing in some of those videos that he's posting where he's running pick and rolls and, and doing what he did in high school. And that's to be a point guard. So maybe a swing skill there, but really, I just think the question for him is, does he shoot the ball or not? Yeah, I think that's huge. Uh, I also think the fact that he's legitimately six, five probably helps. I mean, I think, you know, when you're talking about Meyer Jones and you're talking about Brendan McKissick, you're still on the smaller side. Uh, even with McKissick's physicality, it would be nice to be able to throw a Niles Lane out there who can guard at the three and then maybe handle offensively uh, as a one or one slash two, whatever you want of that. Um, but I think got to play five on five in modern basketball. And, and you know, he just he can't just have – the age of defensive stoppers is pretty much over um, now. And so I don't think you can have that um, and expect it to, to be something that produces high minutes, but certainly has the skill set and the body at 6'5 and strong to, to play confidently, get to the basket, draw fouls, uh, you would think. But in order to do those things, he's got to at least have some semblance of a jump shot that people respect. And luckily it was looking a lot better in, in some of the videos that uh, that Florida was putting out. And um, again, not just that he was making it kind of that it was that it was that he was hitting them, but uh, his stroke looked a lot better, a lot cleaner. And it looked um, actually a lot different than his jump shot as a, as a freshman. So it looks like he kind of like stripped that thing down to the studs and rebuilt it. And uh, for a guy who didn't shoot the ball particularly well, and and I would say his form didn't look great. That's probably what he needed to do. And um but, you know, by all accounts, from what we're hearing, he's he's playing super confident. So I, I think, like, he would probably be one of the players with the highest range of outcomes on the Gators just because, like, I, I you know, it's, it's sad to say, but I could see him falling out of the rotation behind a bunch of other really talented wings. Um, but I could also say, like, it, it really might be as simple as, oh, he hits 35 or 36% of his threes. Well, suddenly he's playing 20 minutes a game. Um so there's not really another player on the Gators who I could see playing zero minutes or 20 minutes, but uh, that might be the case with, for, for Niles Lane. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's it's much closer to that 20, 20 minute per game player than it is the uh, the guy who's struggling to get on the floor. Yeah, I mean, I think that a more positive outcome for Florida because he's so talented defensively would be a world where he's a 10 to 20 minute player. Um, but we will see what the future holds certainly we will discuss the rest of the roster on preview show number two i did want to get into one of the two new assistants tonight so um eric i'm going to give you the honors of introducing those who haven't heard to uh, eric pastrana who comes to florida from oklahoma state 
yeah, someone who's really uh, coached at pretty much every level of basketball and, and has had success, whether it was AAU, whether it was junior college, um, whether it was the mid-major ranks recently at Florida Atlantic or the high-major ranks at, at Oklahoma City or oh, sorry, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma State. So uh, uh, he comes to Florida and I mean, like right away he was kind of known as someone who could really recruit, particularly South Florida. Um, you know, what does he do right away? He comes in and gets Malik Renau's very quickly became a five-star and was pretty clearly a five-star. I think when, you know, we, we saw him play recently. So we kind of saw that he's able to recruit right away. Um, and again, there's a lot of coaches with the reputations of as, as recruiters and uh, the, you know, their reputation is one thing and then you get them on campus and uh, they're not able to do that well. Like, hey, Pastrana did exactly what he was meant to do right away uh, and landed a big time player. So uh, we'll see exactly what happens um, on the on the floor. But I think what I really like about Pastrana is like one, the fact that he just has coached at so many levels. He's seen so many different styles of basketball, which I think for Florida and Mike White and, and assistance that that Mike White has had for so long like again you, you never really know for sure but you think that there might be some kind of really similar thought process when it comes to basketball when it's guys that have been coaching in the same program with each other for so long so i think pastrana is going to bring a lot of kind of variety of thought and i will also say like with, with oklahoma state coaching under mike boyton i like pastrana wasn't there for long but something i love about about Boynton is like you look at his teams one year and then you look at them, you know, a year before and a year before that. And like, you can't pin down his style of basketball because he changes it so rapidly and and fits it to personnel. And you look at last year where they had Kate Cunningham, a player who is, you know, as good of a college basketball player as we've had in a number of years. um, And around him was a bunch of players who couldn't shoot the basketball. So to create a really good team that played well offensively, despite, being far from a prototypical kind of roster for modern basketball. I just, I, I love to see that Oklahoma state was able to really get the most out of their team, even though it was not a super talented roster around Kate Cunningham and was, or at least offensively talented. So um, I think a lot of valuable experience from Pastrana that I'm just really interested to see, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see exactly how much Florida changes their style of play, especially offensively. But we've seen a lot of this really similar stuff over the last six years. So if anything changes, again, it might not be totally fair to say, oh, that's Eric Pastrana. That's his doing. But at the same time, when a team does the same thing for six straight years and if there's any changes, like, yeah, it's probably going to be like, let's look at what, let's look at the assistance that changed. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all great points. We could talk a little bit. I'll, I'll address uh, and Eric left it for me and I appreciate that addressed his, his recruiting impact on the program. Um, but I would mention, I mean, just a player like Avery Anderson, the third is a great example of somebody who, um, you know, had this massive leap in production and some of that people said, well, that's because he's playing with Kate Cunningham. But I think some of it was just Eric Strata and Mike Boynton and the rest of that staff's ability to get him to, to play to his strengths and realize that like he wasn't going to be a volume shooter. Uh, and, but, but he was a big, strong kid who, you know, was somebody who was good in the pick and roll and could get to the basket. And so that's kind of what he became. And as a result, you know, his field goal percentage jumped 12% uh, in, in one season and his, his points per game went up eight points and his effective field goal percentage went up 14 points. I mean, you know, these are things that are pretty wild, but it's just, Hey, play to your strengths, maximize what you have on your roster. And I think that's a great point. 
uh, that Eric made from a recruiting standpoint, just his Florida ties. Uh, obviously, you know, seeing Leaker now and Eric mentioned just getting back to Miami where Florida sort of became the program that they are by mining the 305 and, and getting big time commits, starting with Britt Wright, Udonis Haslam and players of that ilk, Major Parker. I mean, the number of players early in the Billy Donovan era that came from that area were so essential to building what Florida basketball is today. And I think Eric Pastrana, like Leonard Hamilton, uh, has done at Florida State, sort of realizes that, you know, you don't have to go very far to, to get good talent in the state of Florida. Uh, it's not just Montverde, although it's nice to see Florida reopen that again. I mean, if you can get a kid like a Denzel Aberdeen from Orlando Phillips, big physical guard that kind of fits the mold of the SEC or Big Ten guard, that's good. Um, you know, and I think Florida's going to keep working those angles and, and trying to do that. But they're also, with Pastrana on staff, in on more recruiting battles again, something that we saw a couple years ago but had not seen in the last year and a half, really, since they signed Scotty Lewis and Trey Mann and all those guys. And we were waiting on a couple big announcements in Chance Lowry and Noah Clowney, um, you know, feeling pretty good about one, not so great about the other, but the fact that they're in on them is, is awesome. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with just kind of bringing in new energy to the program from Eric Pastrana. And again, it's not anything against Jordan Mency or Darius Nichols, who both have earned the right to be head coaches. And, you know, I think are both going to do great jobs at, at their respective programs, but um, sometimes a change and it, just a different point of view is good. doesn't necessarily mean that the old way was bad, uh, but I think I like the idea of Eric Pastrana kind of coming home to Florida uh, and it just feels like a good fit. Yeah, it does. And and I think that soon Eric Pastrana is going to join the Jordan Mincy and, and Darius Nichols of the world getting a head coaching job. So I think we've definitely got to enjoy Pastrana uh, while we can. And um, if you ever have the chance to hear him speak, yeah, he's someone who is just like so charismatic and uh, someone who's just like kind of known as, as an incredible relationship builder. And um, he's he's extremely likable and you can see why recruits want to come and play for him for sure. So uh, and and I, sh I should add, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that Florida is is changing their offense a little bit uh, this year from what we've seen in the past. So we'll see exactly how that that takes place. But um, and again, is that totally fair to chalk that up to the new assistants? It's like, well, it's I, I, I guess not. But again, we're we're seeing we're seeing we saw similar stuff for for a number of years here. So uh, we'll see what that influence does. Sadly, we probably won't know exactly what was what was Eric Pastrana's doing. Like, what did he say? Oh, we should be. <laughs> doing this this way or here's a set i like or here's a family of series i like so guess we won't know that totally but um hey if uh ken palm is right and the gators are ultimately a much better offensive team than defensive team and it's because that running different stuff um you know someone like graham hall or for, for sure is going to be in the press conferences asking uh asking what eric pastrana brought to the offensive end Yeah, and uh, maybe we'll get into the first big press conference and media availability of the year on the next show. I know that there was media availability today. Until then, uh, make sure you check out Eric Fawcett's work, GatorCountry.com. He's got a nice little piece on how analytic, uh, how different analytical tools are are viewing the Gators. A um, bunch of different stuff from, from Eric Fawcett at GatorCountry.com. So make sure you 
all check that out. We appreciate you listening. We went 70 minutes on the first preview show, which I think uh, is good. I'm getting juiced for basketball. Like I'm so excited. It's almost here, man. Um, and as we've been doing, we're just going to let Eric close it out because I like the way that these shows are finishing and y'all get tired of me talking anyway. Go Gators and keep attacking closeouts. <laughs>